Please turn to Matthew chapter 21. Come with me to Jerusalem. It's early morning. Just try to imagine the sights, the smells, and the sounds. Already the temple court is just filled with mayhem because it's, it's around the time of Passover. Lots of activity, lots of noise. And as we walk amongst the tables of the money changers and those who are selling animals, you'll notice people are crowding in already, even though it's early morning. People are chatting with friends. People are selecting doves for their sacrifice. People are getting their foreign money exchanged into the sacred half-shekel that was, that was necessary there in the sanctuary. Something that's convenient. It's convenient to buy sacrifices on the spot instead of having to, to drag your sacrifice from wherever you might live. Some people come from long distances when they come to Jerusalem during Passover time. It's helpful to be able to exchange money, in particular, that has the head of a pagan Roman emperor, which was never acceptable in the temple in Jerusalem. That was another reason why they had to have money changers, because you're only allowed to use the temple money. You think about that, uh, 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 many of the Jews considered it a, a graven image to have to have the head of a pagan Roman emperor on, on the money in the temple. So that was totally unacceptable in the temple. So it was convenient for all, but there were some who were actually making profits. What do you hear as you come into the temple? What do you hear in Jerusalem? Well, I hear sharp voices, probably arguing, bickering even, if you know anything about the Jews. Maybe even some people swearing, getting angry. A lot of people there. You might hear the metallic tinkle of coins as they drop into the money boxes on the table. All the signs of greed could be heard there. And then just as you're hearing all this stuff going on, you might be thinking, wow, there's, I thought the temple was supposed to be a place of serenity. I thought this was supposed to be a place of prayer, but it's just so busy, so loud, so noisy, so smelly, that how could this possibly be a place of prayer? Suddenly there's a lull in the confusion. Startled at the sudden quiet, we look up to find a strange yet hauntingly familiar figure standing between two of the huge pillars there in the temple. It's Jesus. Jesus has entered Jerusalem and entered the temple after His triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Let's read what happens here in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, as Jesus enters the temple. Matthew 21, verse 12. These are the words of the living God. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David! They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. The first thing we see in this passage, there's a number of truths that that we can see here, but I think the overarching thing that we need to, to, to leave today with is this, is that the king is displaying his authority. The king is the Messiah. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He's, he's already entered triumphantly into Jerusalem. People have proclaimed him be, to be the son of David. He is the Messiah. And now he is displaying this authority that God has given to him. And he does it in a number of ways. And, and we see in this passage here that the king is displaying his authority by judging hypocritical religion. Judaism had become quite hypocritical. And, and for you to really understand, to get a proper understanding of what's going on here, we need to know that the temple was a huge complex. Massive. And I've given you a, um, a slide up here. You can get an idea of just how big this temple is. If you go, please. There you go. Um, typically, we, think, we only think of the temple. Some people only think of the temple as the temple proper, which is only a very small portion. Just that little teeny building, one of those little buildings right in the middle. This was massive. Some people have said it was up to about 35 soccer fields. Imagine 35 soccer fields spread out, all attached to one another. That's how big this temple complex was. So the temple itself is relatively small in the scheme of things here. But this small building is surrounded by several courts. Uh, the biggest outermost court was called the Court of the Gentiles, and this is probably where these money cha- the, the, the money changers were. Uh, where this is probably where the selling of the animals was taking place. So this is where Jesus comes in. So so get get the picture here with me, okay? Jesus is coming into the temple, not the temple proper. That was a very uh, sanctified place, very holy place. So the the money changing and the selling of the animals is going on on that that outward part of the temple complex. And you also need to understand there's two kinds of business that was being transacted. The first was the exchange of various national currencies for the temple coins that were used to pay the temple tax. Everybody coming in on Passover, uh, and some, by the way, have said maybe upwards of 2 million people cramming into Jerusalem and the surrounding area there, they all had to pay the temple tax. And so it was unacceptable to use anything other than the official uh, Jewish uh, temple tax coin. They couldn't come in and use any Roman coins or anything else. And the other kind of trade was the sale of sacrificial animals. The justification for these practices, by the way, wasn't necessarily a bad thing. But what happened is, this left it open for abuse. Jesus was concerned about the abuse that was taking place. For, let, let me just give you an example. In relation to the money, 
Uh, I read uh, that the money changers charged uh, possibly 6% or even higher just to change the money. So these money changers were getting rich. The priests were getting rich in the process. Abuses with the sale of animals was even worse. Uh, A person could bring his own sacrifice to the temple. The problem with that was that uh, they had to get past the inspectors. (laughs) And you know who the inspectors were working for? They're working for the priest. They're essentially filling the coffers, the money bags of the priest. They want the people to buy from these, these people who are selling the animals. So your chances of actually getting past the inspector with, with an animal that was considered to be without blemish was very small. Because they want you to buy their animals at an inflated prices. Uh, now the Old Testament law stated that if you were, if you were not rich, if you were on the poor side, you could come and you could buy doves. And that's why the scripture is mentioning these, these birds here. And so, uh, so that most of the time, if they brought their own animals, they would be rejected. And so they had to, had to purchase from the concessions there in the temple uh, outer court. And of course, those would, weren't cheap. Uh, they had a monopoly going on. Uh, somewhere I read that a pair of doves could cost 50 times more in the temple complex than you could buy it outside of Jerusalem. So imagine, just imagine, let's say a dove cost a, a dollar. If you could buy the dove for a dollar outside of Jerusalem, you try to bring that in, the inspectors would reject it, and then you would be forced to buy one for $50. And then you could offer that as a sacrifice to God. And of course the dove didn't cost $50. I mean, they were getting very, very rich and uh, hurting the poor people in the process. So the king, in the midst of his of this this whole situation he's displaying his authority as messiah he is the king he doesn't like this uh hypocritical religion of judaism that that is going on and and so we see that god doesn't accept the religion of hypocrisy here god does not accept the religion of hypocrisy and that's why jesus he comes into the temple here in verse 12 and he is showing a righteous anger The Bible says it is possible to have righteous anger. Of course, Jesus could not sin. And so the anger he is showing has to be sinless, righteous. And he, and he, he's driving out all these people who are selling and, 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 and and turning over the tables of the money changers and those who are selling the pigeons. He's showing God doesn't accept their hypocritical religion. Jesus justified his action by a comparison of two Old Testament phrases. You can look at in your Bible there in Matthew 21. Uh, the first one actually comes from my, the prophet Isaiah, and it's referred, uh, you'll see that phrase there, that house of prayer. That comes from Isaiah chapter 56. The second comes from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah says that the in chapter 7, the hypocritical worshipers of his day had caused the temple to become a den of robbers. So Jesus uses that phrase from two, dif- uh, two different phrases from two different prophets in the Old Testament. Why is he doing that? He's, he, he's, he's justifying the action that he is doing here. By the way, in, in Jeremiah 7 there, Jeremiah was writing, you look at the context, he's writing about hypocrisy. 
And Jesus used the word robbers to describe the unjust extortion that was going on. Okay, yes, you might need to make a living, but to charge 50 times more than what you should is ridiculous. So Jesus used the word robbers to describe this unjust extortion. But hypocrisy must also have been in his mind, as if we look at the following story about the where Jesus curses the fig tree, I'll explain that in a moment, but that's also backing up this idea that God does not accept hypocritical religion. So what was the problem here? Well, the real problem was the commercializing of religion. They were commercializing this. It, it had become a big money-making thing. The priests were rich. Well, sadly, this is also a problem today. We live in a highly commercialized age, and it's interesting, uh, several decades ago, there was a Canadian author uh, that I heard about by the name of John White. He wrote a book. This is Remember, this is several decades ago. He wrote this book called The Golden Cow. Subtitle, Materialism in the 20th Century. And in this book, White exposed three abu- areas of abuse that, that go quite, quite well with, with the story we see here in Matthew 21. Let me just point out these three things that John White mentions. Number one, the first area of abuse is attachment to things. We have an attachment to things. Western materialism, essentially, as John White says, we essentially believe that matter is all that matters. I love the way he worded that. Matter is all that matters. That, that's we in the West, that's what we believe. Sadly, it's encroaching on the East as well, isn't it? White said this, I quote, No Christian would agree that matter is all that matters. For our very faith negates the assertion. Yet if our behavior is examined, many of us who call ourselves Christians begin to look more like materialists. We talk of heaven, but we strive for things. End quote. We strive for things. We, we have this attachment to things. We love them because we love ourselves too much. The second area of abuse that White points out, is evangelical advertising. Now, it's interesting, he's added that word evangelical on there to show this is, this is not a secular advertising. But even we in our evangelical circles are involved in the advertising process. Well, maybe not you, but it goes on. It certainly goes on. Every time I go to the church post office box, I'm inundated usually with evangelical advertising. We're bombarded by it. We live in an age of sophisticated advertising. Churches receive way too many catalogs. We receive way too many mail solicitations. It's interesting. Mr. White calls the much of the evangelical literature today, he calls it Christian junk mail. It's Christian junk mail. It's interesting. He also said that we tend to trust in mass advertising more than we trust in God. I hope that's not the case with you. I hope that's not the case with our church, but certainly we're, we're certainly tempted to do that sort of thing. The third area of abuse that is quite applicable in our story here in Matthew 21 is crass commercialism. Crass commercialism. Sadly, we have many Christian publishers, and many of them, okay, many of them are doing a great thing, okay? Uh, I, I appreciate many of the publishers and, 
and how God has used them to minister in my own life. But uh, sadly, some of the stuff coming from some Christian publishers, White calls it Jesus junk. You just walk into many Christian bookstores, for example, you'll see T-shirts, pencils, plaques, bookmarks, bumper stickers available. And, and a lot, frankly, a lot of times it's just got cheap religious sayings on them, don't they? Some of them can be helpful. Uh, I bought a few things from the Christian bookstores, and, and, and I'm personally helped by them, but some of them are just sad, aren't they? One of the ones that makes me sad is the bumper stickers that says, Honk if you love Jesus. Honk if you love Jesus. I think what we need to be asking ourselves is, have we got caught up in this crass commercialism? Have we just kind of gone along with the world and, and kind of accepted these things? Does something like that actually honor Jesus? That's the question we should be asking. Does it honor Jesus? Or are by partaking in this sort of stuff, are we actually taking God's name in vain? That's the question I'm wondering. Are we taking God's name in vain? We could be. We certainly need to ask the question. Well, in verses 14 through 17... We see that God, what does God accept? If he, if he rejects this hypocritical religion, what does he accept? Well, one of the things we see here is that God accepts the religion of humble, genuine praise of Jesus. In verses 14 through 17, we've already read that. We see after Jesus has turned over these money tables, he's, he's driving these people out who are selling the animals Immediately in verse 14, the, these outcasts of society come to Jesus. Did you see that in verse 14? We've got the blind, the lame, the outcasts of society coming to him in the temple area, that outer court. And, and what does Jesus do? Does he drive them out? No, he accepts them. He welcomes them and he heals them. So just think about this. If true religion is not buying and selling... If true religion is not the, the thriving establishment of the Jewish past, if true religious, religion is not the evangelical present, then what is it? Well, we need to listen to Matthew's answer here, don't we? Because the way we think, what we do, needs to be driven by what we see in Scripture. Not by the world's marketing ideas, what various authors might be telling us. What does Matthew say? What is true religion? As you can see here, the first one is care for the needy. Care for the needy is one of these, these things that shows us what true religion looks like. Jesus cared for the needy. We got the blind and the lame coming to him, and he heals them. Although Jesus is driving out the money changers from the temple, what is he doing? He's welcoming these, these outcasts of society. And so just as Jesus did, you and I need to seek out and help the needy as well when they come to us. We need to do what we can. Sometimes you might have to tell them like the apostles did, hey, you know, gold and silver I don't have, but what I do have I give to you. Right? You may not have the money, but maybe you can give them some time. Maybe you can give them some spiritual encouragement the Holy Spirit says it this way in James 1, verse 27. Look at this. Religion 
that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. You want to know what it looks like? Here's what it looks like, James says. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So it's it's action as well as being. Action as well as the being is what true religion looks like. God cares what you do, but He also cares who you are. Are you unstained from the world? Okay. Usually we tend to we tend to to if there if there is a pendulum swing, you know, we're we're going to be one or the other, right? It's hard to be both and do both. But God says. Yes, by all means, be actively serving Him, but at the same time, keep yourself unstained from the world. Number two, what is true religion? Verses 15 and 16 show us it's praise of Jesus. God cares about our praise of Jesus. The children were praising Jesus. They're they're shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David! Religion that God accepts is not a religion of commercialism or, uh, or commercial success or even captivating enterprise like, like uh, the religious leaders of the Jews were doing. But God cares that we're humble, genuine in our praise of Jesus Christ. Who is He? God cares that that praise is in spirit and in truth, by the way, John 4.24 says. So there's a striking contrast here, verses 15 and 16. Did you notice that? We've got Jesus being praised by the children, but in striking contrast to that, who and who and what are the religious leaders doing? They're the ones that are to be leading Israel in worship, but what are they doing here? They're actually indignant. Did you see that? They're angry. They're angry that Jesus is being praised. <laughs> They hated Jesus because he's the one who's getting the people's attention and not accepting their commercial interest. Their pocketbooks are going to be hurt by Jesus. Their bank accounts are going to go down. The stock market's going to drop as far as they're concerned, and they don't like that. And so they asked Jesus a question here, and you've got to love Jesus' reply, don't you? Did you notice his reply? It's brilliant. As Jesus' replies are always brilliant, he quotes from Psalm 8. In verse 16, that's a quote from Psalm 8. He says, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Psalm 8 is an amazing psalm. And when you read that whole context of Psalm 8, which is helpful, it really helps us understand what's going on here. One commentator said that Jesus' answer from Psalm 8 did three things. Number one, it provided a biblical basis for Jesus' refusal to silence the children. Number two, it was a claim to deity. Jesus is showing, hey, I am Messiah, I'm God. Because he's he's quoting from this psalm here, which is a psalm, did you notice when we read it together, it's a psalm of praise to God. It's directed to God. And number three, it reminded everybody that is it's only those who are willing to become like children who are going to be able to perceive this truth about Jesus, these are the ones who are going to be saved. Jesus seems to be doing all of that in his quotation from Psalm 8. And so when Jesus comes to his temple, 
what he offers here is not some commercialized religion. What is Jesus offering? Himself. Jesus offers himself. He's not offering some pattern for success. Hey, just, you know, buy my book and follow these 11 steps. And No, he's not doing that. But the reality is, we need Jesus, don't we? He, he is the greatest. And so if we believe on Him, the Bible says we pass from death to life. And we become citizens of His kingdom. And if we will not have Him, you know what happens then? If you reject Jesus, like the religious leaders, what happens is what we discover in verse 17. Did you notice what happens in verse 17? Verse 17 says that Jesus left. He left, and he walked about three three kilometers outside of Jerusalem to Bethany. He left. And so, my friend, if you will not have Jesus, he's going to go. If you don't want Jesus, he will go. He will leave you. But when he does, life and hope go with him. Well, in case we haven't got this display of Jesus' authority yet. Jesus continues to display His authority, and He's going to use a tree to do it. The very one of His pieces of creation that He has made, He's going to use to display His authority, but at the same time, we see the King displaying His authority here by judging fruitless religion. And He's going to illustrate it by cursing a fig tree. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, In the morning... As he was returning to the city of Jerusalem here, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree, <clears throat> how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The king displays his authority by judging fruitless religion, and he's using the fig tree, to illustrate the judgment on this fruitless religion. So, you need to understand something here, because many of us are are agriculturally challenged. If you're an arborist, maybe you'll understand this. If you know a few things about fig trees, maybe you'll understand what's going on here. So let me enlighten you. So in order for us to understand this passage, you've got to know something that in the Old Testament, number one, Israel is often compared to fig trees and vines. Also, you need to understand that judgment on Israel is compared to its destruction. I'll give you one example. Many examples we could look at. Here's one on the screen, right? Hosea, look at this. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. This is what God says. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your father's. But they came to Baal, Peor, and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. 
Ephraim, by the way, another name for Israel. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they gave birth, I will put their beloved children to death. Okay, you see that? There's, there's, there's the imagery of fruitlessness. What's the result? Judgment. God judged them as a result of their fruitlessness. So the fruitless fig tree represented this barren religion of Judaism that, that Jesus found during the, those last three years of his earthly life. And its destruction represented God's impending judgment on it. God said, I will bring judgment. By the way, when did that happen? By the way, 70 A.D. Remember, 70 A.D. The Romans came in, sieged Jerusalem, sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, killed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. It was said that there were no trees left around Jerusalem because there were so many people dying on crosses. Romans, you don't want to tick them off, because when you do, God God used these heathen people to accomplish His purposes. It shows us what God thinks of fruitless religion. Now, I don't know a whole lot about fig trees. I've never had one, but I have did some reading this week. And there are commentators that say that fig trees first produce uh, the green figs. So the green figs start coming out, and then you get leaves shortly after that, and and these the the, the green leaves will come, and, and then later on in the year the figs will ripen up, and normally they can be picked and eaten. The problem here, though, is Jesus comes, he sees what does he see on the tree? He sees leaves. Okay, so if you know anything about a fig tree, Jesus is thinking, well, he already knows this, but the fig tree, if it has leaves, should already have fruit on it. And so he comes up to the tree, he's using this tree as an illustration of this fruitless religion, and he shows his disciples, look, there's no figs. There's leaves, but no figs. It's fruitless. So the problem here is that a tree and leaf is advertising something. What we see here is false advertising, though, don't we? False advertising. This fig tree had no fruit at all. It was a case of false advertising which Jesus goes on to use this as an illustration of hypocrisy and religion. So, so again, what, what do we have here? We have a, a classical case of, of profession without the practice. Israel was professing something but weren't practicing, particularly the religious leaders. That was the ones that Jesus had the greatest woes and condemnation for. Sadly, it's been a problem throughout biblical history. This was not the only time this had happened. I'll give you an example. On the day before the prophet Ezekiel learned that the fall of Jerusalem was going to happen to the Babylonians, the Lord actually appeared to Ezekiel, and he, he, was, he wanted to explain to Ezekiel why was this going to happen. Ezekiel's going to find out why Jerusalem's going to fall to heathen Babylonians. All right, look what it says here. Ezekiel 33, it's on the screen. As for you, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, Come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. 
And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. You understand what's going on here? God tells Ezekiel why Jerusalem was going to be destroyed the first time. Do you understand what he says? What does God say here? The people, like many people in our day today, they just wanted their ears to be tickled. The people wanted to be just merely entertained by God's words. They want the lustful singing and playing of instruments. They didn't want to obey God's instructions, though. Our day and age is no different from this in many ways. It's interesting, later on in his, biblical history, Jesus, he quotes from one of the prophets in Matthew chapter 15. Look at this. Here's what Jesus says. Matthew 15, verse 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We've got to be careful because we can do the same. We can honor God with our lips when our heart is not there with God. So what was Jesus teaching through the fig tree? Unless you missed the point, let me just mention three things. Okay, What was Jesus teaching through this illustration in cursing the fig tree? Well, number one, the religion of Israel was not producing fruit. Just like the fig tree had no fruit on it, it was falsely advertising something. That was the same in Israel. False advertising. The, particularly the religious leaders were hypocrites. Oh, they might look good on the outside. Jesus said, oh, on the outside, you guys, you know, you look like whitewashed tombs. And on the inside, you're just full of dead men's bones. Number two, God wants to produce fruit in His people. He wants to produce fruit in His people. According to John 15, the only way you can do that, by the way, is you have to abide in Jesus. John 15 says, Jesus is the vine. You're just a branch. You've got to stay connected. Draw your sustenance, your food, your everything, your strength and energy from Him. And if you, if you get disconnected, you're in trouble. You'll be fruitless. Number three, any fruitless religion will always wither up at last, just like Judaism did. And this is what's going to happen to any gathering of people, by the way, who somehow shows some some outward manifestation of some professing fruit. You might show some green leaves of some apparent spiritual prosperity in your life and fail to possess the fruit of the Spirit. It's possible. It is possible. Jesus even talks about that in Matthew 7. There are people who, who profess, Hey, Lord, Lord, look what we have done in Your name! And Jesus is going to say, Depart from Me. I never knew You. Profession doesn't 
equal possession. The problem of profession without practice was present in the early church as well. Look what the Apostle James says. He says in James 1, verse 22, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he was like. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see what God is saying here? It's not enough to come to His Word and read it. God doesn't say you're going to be blessed by reading His Word here. He says you're blessed when you do it. When you actually do something with it. Apply it. One of my favorite authors is J.C. Ryle. Listen to what J.C. Ryle writes about this passage in Matthew. I quote, It's on the screen here. Is not every fruitless branch of Christ's visible church in awful danger of becoming a withered fig tree? High ecclesiastical profession without holiness among a people, overweening confidence in councils, bishops, liturgies, and ceremonies, while repentance and faith have been neglected, have ruined many a visible church in time past and may yet ruin many more. Where are the once famous churches of Ephesus and Sardis and Carthage and Hippo? They're all gone. They had leaves but no fruit. Let us remember this. Let us us beware of church pride. Let us not be high-minded, but fear. End quote. My friend, my friend, if you belong to Jesus, you will produce spiritual fruit. The Bible says if, if you abide in the vine, Jesus Christ, you will bear fruit. If you're alive, something that is growing and that is alive bears spiritual fruit. But if you do not, the Bible says you don't belong to Jesus. Jesus doesn't know you. Look at verse 20. Why did Jesus... Let me ask you this. You look at verse 20. Why did Jesus respond this way? Some people look at verses 20 through 22 and say, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to fit the context here. Jesus has cursed this fig tree. The disciples are asking, you know, you know, about the fig tree. They don't really understand what's going on. And in verse 20, it says that when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And then Jesus goes on and he teaches them something that seems to be out of context. Why did Jesus respond this way? You need to remember that this passage comes in a greater context. We need to remember the chapter begins with an account of three symbolic acts. Okay, So we got all these three symbolic acts. We have Jesus entering into Jerusalem. His triumphal entry is, is the first one. So these three symbolic acts are pointing to something. It's pointing to the failure of Judaism. And if you look at the end of the chapter, it actually ends with two parables that are explaining the nature of this failure. 
It's explaining the nature of, of Israel's religion, its fruitless religion, its hypocritical religion. And so in that context, Jesus then uses this time to show that their religion, part of their religion, had neglected prayer. And when you think of prayer, you need to think of communion with God. Communion with God. See, God communes with us. We can commune with Him. So God speaks to us through His Word. And through prayer, you get to talk to God. So Jesus uses this opportunity to show their neglect of prayer, particularly by the priest. Jesus is teaching that what is important about genuine religion is, hey, not how nice your temples look. Jesus is saying, I don't care how much gold is on your temple or how many, how many shekels are in your coffers. But are you actually communing with God? Are you growing spiritually by this communion with God? Let me, let's do a little mental exercise together, okay? Let's use our brains for a moment. Let's think about the Pharisees and then take what we know about the Pharisees and apply that to what we know about ourselves. What, what do we know about the Pharisees? Well, hopefully you know a lot. As we've been going through Matthew, we've seen them several times and we'll see them again later on. One of the things we know about these men is they're very thorough about obeying these man-made traditions, particularly their man-made interpretations of the law. They didn't want to break God's law. That's a good thing. But in the process, they came up with these man-made interpretations, man-made traditions, so they wouldn't break God's law. That's okay. The problem was the man-made traditions became equal and sometimes greater than God's law. That was the problem Jesus had. And so their brand of religion, at this time anyway, was prospering. The temple was beautiful. They were financially successful. It was a prosperous place. The Pharisees were highly regarded by the people. Yet, what did Jesus think about all this? Well, Jesus shows what he thought about this when he came in and he starts, you know, he grabs himself and makes himself a whip and he's driving people out and turning over the money tables and getting these sacrifices out of there. He shows what he thought about this by cursing the fig tree. Yes, the Pharisees were highly regarded and everything seemed to be prosperous on the outside, but that meant nothing to Jesus. He had no interest in this outward show of religion. Jesus cared about what was going on in the heart. He said, oh, you, you, you speak good words, but your heart is far from me. Jesus counted religion fruitless if financial pros- prosperity had marginalized communion with God. And that's exactly what had happened here. Communion with God had been marginalized or extinguished. And that's why Jesus teaches us about prayer here in verses 21 and 22. And so in verse 21, Jesus answers them and he says, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it's going to happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The idea there is even the seemingly impossible can be accomplished by God through faith in Him. 
And so if Jesus were speaking to us directly today, would he not say the same things about our brand of Christianity? I don't know. We do know, though, Jesus said something very interesting through the Apostle Paul. I want you to look how the religious people are described here in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5. Here's what Jesus says to the Apostle Paul. He says, They had an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Could that be you? Maybe not at the moment, but maybe sometime in your life this could represent you. You might have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. You might might show some prosperity outwardly speaking, but inwardly your heart is far from Jesus. You're not communing with God. And so the leaders of Israel, it's interesting, they're not willing to acknowledge Jesus' authority here. They don't want to acknowledge Jesus' authority. They don't like Jesus. It's like Jesus is attacking them. And so they wanted to be the authorities themselves. We like our positions of power and money and authority. And so the result is they ended up perishing in their sins. At least most of them did. Many people are going to perish for exactly the same reason. We have people today who, who are unwilling to acknowledge Jesus' authority. Oh, they might see him as a good man or a good teacher. Some might even go that far. But is Jesus' authority really affecting their lives? How about the various areas of your life? Is Jesus' authority affecting all areas of your life? Are you totally surrendered to Jesus? Chances are not. These people were clinging to their own supposed authority. They didn't want to come to Jesus. And so, my friend, that doesn't need to be the case with you, though. That doesn't need to be true of you. Okay? Jesus doesn't have to leave you. Jesus can come to you, and He can heal you of your greatest problem, which is your sin problem. Jesus is willing. Jesus is able to save you, or or anybody else, by the way, who comes to Him in faith, and in faith alone. It's not your works, because Ephesians 2 says we're not saved by works, it's through faith, by grace in Jesus alone. So acknowledge Jesus' authority. Ask Him to save you from your sins. And the good news is, the Bible says, He will. It's a promise. He will. Just as He did with these, these young ones, who He accepted these young, these, these, the blind and the lame, the outcasts of society to come to Him. Jesus, He is longing and willing and able to help all outcasts, all sinners who come to Him. He is willing and able to help you as well. Will you allow Him to do so? Will you acknowledge His authority in all areas of your life? We should. We should. May God give us His grace to do that.